I do remember the passage that he gave me. It was 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, the Christian graces. My knees didn't knock. They missed. <laughs> I was one nervous character. But how grateful I am to Gene for not only inspiring me to begin preaching, but also he talked to me about becoming a Christian when I was 11. And that was a great blessing to me that helped me to decide to obey the gospel while G.K. Wallace was preaching in a gospel meeting at the South Thompson Street Church of Christ. A long time ago, back in 1977, I was invited to go out to Culpeper Mountain and hold a gospel meeting. That was back during the days when we had the six-night gospel meetings. Culpeper was not too far from Searcy, so I decided that I would drive back and forth. I don't remember a lot about that meeting, but there's one event that I guess I will carry with me until the day I die. Brother and Sister Quaterbaum invited me out on Tuesday or Wednesday, I can't remember which, to have an evening meal with them. And then after that evening meal, we would go over to the building and be a part of the worship service. During the meal, we in, were engaged in a conversation, and Sister Quaterbaum said to me, have you noticed the song leader for the meeting? I said, well, yes, I've noticed the song leader, but was there something in particular that I was to notice about him. She said, I really believe that the man who is leading the singing in this gospel meeting is one of the most patient men that I've ever heard about and that I've ever known. I said, well, tell me about him. She said, his name is Marvin Bolin, and he grew up in a great big white house that's not located very close to the church building. It's the house in which he still lives. And when he was a senior in high school, his sister, who then was 12 years of age, named Romy, was diagnosed as having a terrible disease and it would soon leave her totally paralyzed from the neck down for the rest of her life. And when Marvin graduated from the high school, he came to his dad and he said, Dad, I really think I need to stay here with you. I know that you think that I've got plans for my life, but those plans have changed. I want to help out with my sister. And his father said, no, Marvin, I want you to go ahead with the life that you've got planned. I'll make sure that your sister has everything she needs. So Marvin did. He joined the Navy. And after serving for four years in the Navy, it was time for him to go back to Culpeper Mountain. Packed his bags, he was ready to leave. And his father called. His father said, Son, I hate to tell you this, I know you're on your way home, but I thought I should call you and let you know what has happened. Your mother has had a stroke. It's a massive stroke, and probably she'll never be able to walk again. Marvin comes home. He said to his dad, Dad, I really believe I need to stay here. I had planned to get a job, but I really believe I need to stay home here with you, and I'll help you to take care of my mother and my sister. His father said, no, Marvin, I'm retired. We've got this farm. I'm not going to farm it anymore. If we need money, we'll just sell a piece of it and get money that way, but I'm going to take care of your mother 
and your sister. You go on and take a job if you like. He did. Went over to Clinton, Arkansas and got a job working in a bank. And pretty soon he was doing really well. It looked like he was going to be one of the officers of the bank. But then one Sunday he was called again. Wasn't his father calling this time. It was one of the members of the church telling Marvin, your father was leading the singing in our worship service as he normally does. He collapsed. We got him out of the building. We got him to the hospital. He also has had a major stroke and he will never walk again. Marvin was in his late 20s, almost 30 years of age. He had never married. He resigned from his work as a banker. He came back to Culpeper Mountain and Sister Quattlebaum said he literally gave the rest of his life caring for his mother, his father, and his sister. They believed in worshiping the Lord. They never missed a service. And the family that he had, the crippled family that he had, the invalids that he had, they would insist that Marvin go over to every worship service of the church in the little church building there on Culver by Mountain. He would go for Bible class and stay for worship. Then he would make a beeline home and teach them the Bible class lesson that they had and also to go over the sermon that was preached. Come back on Sunday night, do the same thing. He'd listen carefully and then he'd go home, take them through the worship service that they had experienced. They didn't want him to miss. And whenever he came home, they wanted him to take them through the worship service. They wanted him to oversee the observance of the Lord's Supper for them. It was his mother who died first, so far as I remember the story. And she was placed there in the little cemetery that's close by the church building. Soon his father died, and he also was placed in that cemetery beside his wife. But his sister lived until just a year or two before I arrived to hold the meeting. And it looked like to me that Marvin was maybe 70 years of age, if I'm correct in that evaluation, then Marvin served in this way for 40 years, caring for them, waiting on them hand and foot, being a very patient man. I could see why she said he was the most patient man she had ever met, the most patient man that she had ever known. And as she told me that story, my mind just went in circles for a moment. And as I went over to the building to uh, get ready to preach, I couldn't keep my mind off this man, this wonderful man who was leading the singing. And I saw two traits in his life that I hope I'll always remember. Number one, I saw faith. And number two, I saw perseverance. Here was a man who was not going to quit. He was always going to believe. And he reminds me of another man. This man is found in the Bible. There is a book in the Old Testament that is named after him. His name is Job. And you remember James says in James chapter 5, verse 11, you have heard of the patience of Job. That's the old King James translation. Probably my New American Standard translation has a better translation of it. You have heard of the perseverance of Job. Here is a man who not only believed, but he also persevered in that faith. Yes, we've heard about him before, but we need to hear about him again. Thus, we center our minds on the theme 
why do the righteous suffer? Or to say it another way, can we keep our eyes on God when they're filled with tears? Job's first trial was the trial of poverty. There was a meeting taking place up in heaven. The angels were coming before the Lord. Satan was allowed to come in that number. And as he came before the Lord, he came as the one who is going to criticize. And God said, have you observed my servant Job? And then God gave Job the finest compliment that's found in all of the Old Testament. He's perfect. He's upright. He stays away from evil. And he fears me. One of the finest compliments that God has ever paid anybody in the Old Testament. The devil is the great slanderer. He responds by saying, well, think about what you've done for him. Look at the great wealth that you've given to him. Look at the big family that you've given to him. Anybody would be faithful to you in a circumstance like that. God said, all right, you go down and you test him. Don't take away his life. But I know that Job will be faithful to me. Does God have confidence in you? Does God have confidence in me? I don't know where Job was whenever the news started coming in. He was outside, I'm sure. I know where his children were. They were all in one house over there celebrating in some way. All of a sudden, a servant rushed up to Job and said, Job, you had 500 yoke of oxen. You had 500 female donkeys. And the oxen were out plowing. The donkeys were feeding near them. And the Sabaeans have come by and they've robbed you of all of your oxen. And they've robbed you of all of your female donkeys. You've been wiped out in the farming experience that you're having. And before that servant could finish, another servant came rushing up saying, Job, Job, you had 7,000 sheep. They were feeding out in the field and something like lightning fell from heaven and set that field on fire. All of your sheep had been burned up and many of your servants were rushing in trying to preserve them and they also were killed. I've come to tell you the bad news. Now Job has lost his investments. And before that servant could finish, another servant rushes up and said, Job, you had 3,000 camels. You used those camels to transport your produce across the country. And a little while ago, the Chaldeans came by in three different bands and they've come in sort of marauding bands and they have taken all of your camels and they've killed all of your servants that remain. I remained alive, so I've come to tell you the bad news. Job's been wiped out. And it's appropriate for us to raise the question here, if I were just totally wiped out, if you were just totally wiped out, I don't mean just losing your job. I mean totally wiped out. Would you still believe? Could we keep our eyes on God when they're filled with tears? But the worst is yet to come. A servant rushes up to him and said, Job, you had ten children. You had seven sons and three daughters. And they were in one house together celebrating in some way. And a tornado, something like a tornado, came through and hit that house and demolished it. And all ten of your children are dead. I can't imagine what it would be like to lose one child of our two. Much less what it would be like to lose both children on the same day at the same time. Job didn't lose one child. He lost 10 on the same day. 
didn't go to one funeral on one day. He went to ten funerals the same day. But the most remarkable thing about our story is Job's reaction. Through all this, the last verse of chapter 1 says, verse 22, through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. And he bows down and engages in a little worship service. Though my picture does not portray it, he tore his clothes, he shaved his head, those were expressions of deepest grief, and he bows down and he worships. And in his little worship service, though his eyes are red from crying and his cheeks are stained with tears, he could still see pretty clearly. He saw that God is sovereign, man is just a steward, and life in this world is just a little space in between the two vast eternities, eternity past and eternity future. He said as he prayed, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's faith. That's faith that perseveres. Will you remember that when things do not make sense to you today, that doesn't mean they will not make sense to you tomorrow. There are some things that you cannot understand from the vantage point of today. You have to have a little bit of time to think it over, to understand about life before you can understand it. And we've got a song about it, don't we? Farther along, we all know all about it. Farther along, we'll understand why. When our son was just a little bitty boy, he couldn't understand why he couldn't have a three musketeers candy bar at every meal. We started working on it. We worked on it and worked on it and worked on it. Finally, when he was about nine or ten, he was beginning to get it. A little bit later on, he got it. He has it now. After he married and started having children, he really got it. There are some things you cannot understand from the vantage point of today. You're going to have to trust God. One day, you'll be able to understand. Job's second trial is the trial of pain. There is another meeting that takes place in heaven. The angels come before God. Satan is allowed to come in that number. And God said, in essence, I've seen what you've done. You went down and you took away his wealth. You took away his ability to farm. You took away all of his assets. And you also took away his children. I watched. But Job did not curse me. He did not turn his back on me and walk away. Satan is still playing the part of the great slander, and he responds by saying, well, skin for skin. Anybody will do anything for his life. Let me go down and give him some loathsome disease, and I believe that he'll turn his back on you and walk away. Can God have confidence in you? Can God have confidence in me? He said, you go down. Don't take away his life. Give him some loathsome disease. But I just know that Job will be faithful to me. I don't know where Job was whenever the little red spots began to break out on his body. Maybe he was outside walking around trying to figure out how he was going to start things again. Maybe he was walking across the land praying. I don't know where he was. But maybe he looked down at his hand and there were little red spots all over his hand, all over his arm. He fell to his face and there were red bumps on his face. The old King James translation has... 
that he was covered from the top of his head to the soles of his feet with boils. That was the word that the King James translators used as they translated the Hebrew word. We've tried to do better over the years. The translators have tried to do better over the years. But we're pretty well contented with the word boils. Big boils from the top of his head down to the soles of his feet. I can't imagine what that would be like. I only know this, that from the indications that are given in the text, there would be three side effects to this terrible disease that he had. He didn't know what it was. He had never seen it before. Number one, there was loneliness. It's one thing to suffer. It's another thing to have to suffer alone. But nobody wanted to be around him. Even the little children ran from him. His wife was repulsed at the way he looked. The people around him were afraid they might catch it. He had to face it all alone. He goes outside the city, sets down by the ash heap, goes out at the city dump, if you please. I think he was out there because he had to be. Nobody wanted to be around him. Number two, there would be the side effect of disfigurement. If you lost your good looks, would you still believe? It's really hard to handle disfigurement. I was in a meeting a number of years ago up in Northwest Arkansas. It was a Sunday to Sunday meeting. And there was a woman who came. She had been in a fire. And I mean her face was a solid scar. She didn't want to come in. She'd wait until we had started singing and then she'd slip in and sit down on the back. And then as we ended the service, as we came to the last song, she would slip out. But in those days, as my custom was, I would go back to the back as we sang the last song and I would stand and greet the brethren as they went out. And I'd get to talk to her. I wish I had it to do again. I'd take her hand in mine and I'd try to look her right in the eyes, not let my eyes glance at her face. And I tried to say what I thought would be helpful to her. I did the best I could. Two weeks after that meeting, she took her life. It's hard to handle disfigurement. Number three, there would be the side effect of pain. As best we can tell, it's itching. Itching. He itched all over. From the top of his head down to the soles of his feet. It was severe and unremitting all day and all night. No rest for him. He was in great misery. Goes outside the city the text says, goes to the city dump and he gets a potsherd, that's a broken piece of pottery, to put it in Arkansas language, and he scrapes his body with it. It was the only way that he can get any kind of relief. He comes home to his wife. Now we don't know her name. And remember, before we're critical of her, she's been through a lot. She's buried 10 children. They've lost all of the wealth that they had. They're down to ground zero. And now her husband is sick. And apparently he's not going to live. She's at the end of her rope. And Job comes home. He comes to the one person in the world who could encourage him. There may be a time in your life when you are the only person in the world who can encourage your mate. And as he comes into her, she says... And this is a very inelegant translation. Job, do you still have your integrity? Why don't you just curse God and kill yourself? 
We've lost everything. And just look at you. You have boils all over your body from the top of your head to the soles of his feet. Notice how she uses the word integrity. If you don't believe in God, you don't have any integrity. You cannot have integrity unless you believe in God and you're seeking to follow God. Now Job has only one thing left. Now listen to me. There's going to come a time when you'll just have one thing left. Just one thing. You'll have your faith. His wife has indicated that she's not with him. The children are gone. His wealth is gone. Friends are gone. He's just got one thing. He's got his faith. And he reaches up and takes hold of the rope of faith, ties a knot in it and hangs on. And he says to his wife, listen, we've received blessings from the Lord. And now that adversity has come, we're not going to quit. We're not going to give up. We're going to continue to believe. That's faith. That's faith that perseveres. Well, you remember that when things do not make sense to you intellectually, that doesn't mean they cannot make sense to you spiritually. Let's say you and I are going down the road and we come to a huge boulder that's right in the middle of our roadway. We could stand there all day arguing about how it got there. We like to do that, you know. I would say, well, I think nature did it. It sort of released it from the side of the mountain and it rolled down here and stopped in our roadway. Maybe you would want to argue, I think some evil men did it. They saw us coming down the road, they prized it loose, they got it to roll down here and stop in our walkway. But you know the most important question about that boulder? It's not how it got there. We could spend a lot of time trying to explain why the coronavirus got here and how it got here. That's not the big question about it. The big question about it is, what am I going to do about it? What kind of attitude am I going to have about it? That boulder, how am I going to make it a stepping stone to God? Whatever comes into my life, I should be able spiritually to look at that in some way where it brings me closer to the Lord. I may not understand it intellectually. I may not be able to explain the ins and outs of it, but I can do one thing. God's in charge and God's with me and God will help me to turn this trial into a stepping stone. Job's third trial is the trial of perplexity. And you will notice that it actually starts in the middle of chapter 2 and goes all the way to the end of the book. This is where we're getting into the good stuff. This is where we're really going to find out something about why righteous men suffer. And remember, this third trial is the trial of perplexity. It's what happens to your mind. Why me? Why so much suffering? Why this kind of suffering? Why now? You know how that goes on in your mind. Job has it, and he's going to have to face it. And notice that God is so concerned about this trial that he spends more time on this trial than he does the other two combined. Right in the middle of chapter 2, verse 11, we're introduced to three friends. There are three friends. These are the authorities. 
These are the authorities of the time. They're going to tell you why this takes place and why that takes place. These are the intellectuals. Their names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they talk it over. They say to the, each other, we need to go see Job. Yes, we do. So they made up their minds to go see him, and they go over to see Job. And Job is in such a miserable state. You know, his body is repulsive. He's lost everything. They know who he is. They know what he's going through. And they're so taken aback when they see him, and they understand his circumstance that they can't say anything to him. And so they just weep with him. When you can't say anything, at least you can cry with somebody who's in need. And they weep with him. They weep with him for seven days. And finally, Job breaks the silence. He is the one who starts the conversation. And he will raise two questions that maybe you've heard raised before. But Job breaks the silence by saying, why was I ever born? If I'm just being brought into this world to suffer this way, why was I born? What meaning does it have? And then as you get down toward the end of chapter 3, you'll notice as you look very carefully at it that he raises a second question, and that is, why can't I just go ahead and die? My life is over. Why does the Lord let me linger any longer? Then there comes the different cycles. I won't say too much about them, but I want to alert you that unless you understand the cycles, you will not understand the heart of the book. So we're going to have a number of cycles that take place. These are discourses. I call them cycles. Some will just say we've got a series of speeches. But those cycles run from chapter 4 all the way down through 31. That would be a, sort of a large section of the book. These speeches will get us ready for the conclusion. They will get us ready for what God is going to say about why the righteous suffer. And we can run through the cycles pretty quickly. Cycle number one, chapters four through 14. Eliphaz will speak, Job will answer him. Bildad will speak, Job will answer him. Zophar will speak, Job will answer him. Then cycle number two is about the same. Eliphaz will speak, Job will answer him. Bildad will speak, Job will answer him. Zophar will speak, Job will answer him. But the third has a little different twist. Eliphaz will speak, Job will answer him. Bildad will speak. And Job will answer it. But so far as we can tell, Zophar does not speak. If he does speak, it is not mentioned in the Hebrew text. And it could well be that whenever Job starts answering Bildad, he just keeps on going and says quite a bit about what these friends have said. As I said, I won't say very much about this, but I would like to point this out to you. What are the friends saying? In all of these speeches, what are they saying? This is what they're saying, if we put in a single sentence. They're saying, Job, you've sinned. Now, we don't know what you've done, but God would not allow this to happen to you unless you have sinned. Now, we don't know what you've done, but you've sinned in some way. Job would respond to them by saying, I have not. I've tried to be a righteous man. I've offered sacrifices. I've prayed for my children. I've tried to help the widows and the orphans. I've tried to be a righteous and blameless man. Were the friends right? No, they were wrong. They were too hard on Job. Job wasn't perfect, but they were too hard on Job. And at the end of the book, God will rebuke the friends. He will say, 
He will say to them, you're going to have to get right with me. And the only way you can get right with me is to have Job to pray for you. You're going to have to offer sacrifices and then you're going to have to have Job to pray for you. Was Job right whenever he said, no, I haven't sinned? No, he wasn't right either. The friends were too hard on Job. And Job was too hard on God. And in these cycles of speeches, Job will often say, let me talk to God. The sample is Job 13, verse 5. I want an audience with the Almighty. I want to sit down and talk to God. I'd like to ask a question or two of Him. Well, we come to the end of the cycles. And there is a man who shows up that we haven't seen before. Elihu. He says he's the youngest of the four. We're down to chapter 32, if you're following along in your text. Elihu says to the group, as he finally gets his opportunity to speak, I haven't said anything because I'm younger than the rest of you. And I do respect age. And I believe the older men have the most wisdom. And I've listened as you have spoken. But he said, I want to be frank with you. Whenever you men have spoken about Job, I had anger in my heart. I knew you were not saying the right things about Job. Furthermore, he turned to Job and he said, Job, as you talked about God, I knew you were not saying what should be said about God. I also had anger in my heart. And then Elihu, the youngest of the four, begins to speak. Now, I don't know everything about this, but it looks like to me that he is never rebuked. This is a man who made a good speech. He's never rebuked. God doesn't rebuke him. Job doesn't rebuke him. And if you look carefully at what he says, he will bring up about three lessons that you and I need to learn, four lessons that you and I need to learn. He's talking about God now, and he says, you know, God is our teacher. And in every situation that comes, God uses that as a time to teach. And we can learn. We can learn by everything that occurs to us, regardless of how serious or even regardless of how humorous it might be. God's our teacher. And He will utilize every moment in your life as a teaching moment. Number two, He says, God's ways are always right. You don't want to criticize God. You don't know enough to criticize God. And if you knew all of the facts about what God is doing, you would say God is just and right in everything that He does. Number three, He reminds Job and these other friends, God is good. God is the one who gives us the good things. You know, in Him, all of the good things take place. And when some tragedy comes, we focus on the tragedy and forget about the good things that God has given that surround the tragedies. And then number four, God's almighty. He holds the universe in the palm of his hand. He keeps the earth spinning out in space. He's almighty. He knows what he's doing. He's over the earth. He's God. He's king. He's all wise. And if you rebuke him, you're surely in trouble because you're in over your head. And then finally, we come to 
the time when God speaks. The book has been moving to this all the way through. And now we're sort of breathless. We're going to find out. We're going to see why the righteous suffer. God is going to speak. The God of heaven, the God who made everything, he is the God who's going to tell us why righteous men suffer. So we listen in. And you know what God does? Betty Ed, school teacher, par excellence. You know what he does? He gives a test. He gives a test. And if I've counted correctly, there are 47 questions on it. God said, Job, before I let you talk to me, I want to talk to you. And I want to see if you're qualified to interrogate God. So let me ask you a few questions. You just answer those and we'll go on. Where were you, Job, when I created the earth and made it spin out in space? Where were you when I did that? Where were you when I said to the seas, you can come this far no further? Where were you when I cast the stars into the sky? And there are four uh, different constellations that I believe are mentioned. Where were you when I did these things? Where were you when I created the snow? Where were you when I made the wind blow? Where were you when I did all of these things? 47 questions, and Job cannot answer one of them. He didn't fail. He failed miserably. And whenever he came to the end of those questions, Job put his hand over his mouth and he said, Lord, I didn't know what I was doing when I asked for an audience with you. Well, God said, thank you, but I'm not through. I've got another question for you. It is a smaller test that I want to give you. I want to ask you about a couple of things. We've been talking about the universe. Now let's just talk about two things. We believe the Behemoth would be something like a hippopotamus. Now scholars disagree on this. Some say it's a dinosaur. But remember, this has a lot of figurative language in it. Highly figurative. All of Job is highly figurative in some places. Maybe it was a dinosaur. Maybe it was a hippopotamus. Job knew. He knew what God was talking about. The word is plural. Behemoth. And it means a beast's in plurality. That is, it's big, it's mighty. And so we convey the meaning of it with plurality. And God said, let me just ask you a few questions about him. Well, Job couldn't answer those questions. We believe the Leviathan would be the crocodile. Let me ask you a few questions about him. Let's just take these two animals. It's sort of like God saying, I'll tell you what I want to do now. I want to ask you a few questions about a dog. I want to ask you a few questions about a horse. We've been talking about the universe. You couldn't answer those questions, of course. And now I want to show you that you don't even know the answers to questions about the behemoth and the Leviathan. And at the end of that interrogation, Job knows what has happened, that he is in over his head. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. I've received information that's been passed down to me. I know of you by the hearing of the ear, but now... I understand you by the seeing of the eye. I can see that you're almighty and that you're over everything. And I need to repent, he says. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. If you've been about the business of interrogating God, rebuking God, you better repent. And you better repent in a hurry because you're way in over your head. 
What is the point? What's the point of all of this? I thought we were going to find out why the righteous suffer. Here's the point. Sometimes in life, you're just going to have to trust God. You can go to the preachers and they'll try to give you an answer, but we know that we don't fully know. You can go to the elders and they'll do their best to try to give you an answer. But we also know that we don't really know. We're in over our heads. It's really between you and God. It's your faith in an almighty, all-wise, ever-loving God. And you tie a knot in the end of your rope of faith and you say, Lord, I don't understand. I don't know about this, but I believe. And I'm going to tie a knot in my rope of faith and hang on. Will you remember that when things do not make sense to you? That doesn't mean they don't make sense to God. Just as God worked in the life of Job, God is working in your life whether you realize it or not. God is teaching you. He's working in you. You are just as valuable to God as Job was. I know you may not have the influence that Job had because of how God has put this in the Bible. But God loves you as, you for, as if you were the only one in the world to love. And He's working in your life. You may never know why some of the things have occurred in your life, but you know this. You know that God is working in your life to bring about good and to help you grow and to help you to mature, help you to become the person that He wants you to become. Here's our epilogue. And I want you to remember this. Some of you, I wish I could just reach out and say to you gently as I shake you, be sure and get this. Some of you have suffered far more than I've ever suffered. And as we come to the end of the book, you would expect it. We're going to have some kind of representation of how the faithful sufferer will one day be blessed. And sure enough, in the last, what is it, 17 verses, we have that. The book of Job ends with, if you are a faithful sufferer one day in God's time and in God's way, you're going to be vindicated. So at the end, probably you will want to write above these last seven verses, time, time, tears, talk, and time. Time's really important. And so there's some time that passes by. And you know what happened during that time? Job began to rebuild. Got over his illness. Word spread around the country. Job got well. You know how he was so sick? I mean, he had balls from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. And he is well now. And everybody said, really? We must go by and see him. And whenever they would come by to see him, they would bring a piece of gold or a piece of silver, something that would be meaningful. And Job saved that, I'm sure. And he invested it. And he started to build again. And he got more cattle. And he didn't get 500 yoke of oxen. He got 1,000 yoke of oxen. He didn't get 500 female donkeys. He got 1,000 female donkeys. He didn't get 7,000 sheep. He got 14,000 sheep. 
He didn't get 3,000 camels. He got 6,000 camels. And he and his wife had 10 more children. They already had 10. They were on life's other side. But they got 10 more. This is time. God blessing him over a period of time. God vindicating Job because of his righteousness. And God will vindicate you too. He will vindicate every righteous sufferer in this assembly. You can count on that. Willard Collins, who was the president of David Lipscomb for a number of years, told the story about a young man, <clears throat> T.B. Laramore. When he was young, his father died. His mother got him a job working for the farmer across the way. That farm touched theirs. And so little T.B. would go over there and work for a day or two with the farmer and spend the night over there with him. And then he'd come home after those two or three days being gone. One day he said to his mother, Mother, I don't mind working for the farmer. But he said, it's coming home that I dread. You know, I get right outside uh, his farm and there's our farm and there's a valley that sort of goes down as you come over into our farm. And I usually get there at dusk and it's dark and it's lonely and I don't like to walk down through that valley. She said, well, TV, don't you worry about it anymore. Whenever you get ready to come home the next time, you come to that valley and stop and call for me. And I'll know approximately when you're coming home and I'll be waiting. And you call for me and I'll respond. I'll tell you I'm there. And I'll walk down my side of the valley and you walk down your side of the valley and we'll meet together and we'll walk home together. T.B. Laramore, 11 year old boy, went over to the farmer's house to spend the week working, helping on the farm. Friday came, shadows of the evening were stealing across the sky, 11 year old boy starts home. He gets over there to the edge of the valley. It's evening time and the big trees are reaching up toward heaven and shutting out any light that remains. And the boy is filled with fear. But he remembers the words of his mother. I'll meet you in the middle. He called for his mother across that valley. Mother, mother, it's TB, it's TB. Echoing back across the valley was the feminine voice of his mother. I'll meet you in the middle. I'll meet you in the middle. She went down her side and he went down his side. They embraced. They took hold of each other's hands and they walked home together. It's a beautiful thing to have togetherness and companionship. But I want to tell you this, you've got something better. There'll be a time when you and I will cry out, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, I'm here at the edge of the valley. We'll cry out. And we know how our Lord is going to answer. We've read it in the scriptures. We know it full well. Jesus is not going to say, I'll meet you in the middle of the valley. He's going to say, I'm with you now. I'm rich. You're right there as you stand on the edge. And you and I will go through everything together. I will not allow any of my disciples to go through any trial, any difficulty, any hardship without being right there with them. He told Stephen, now Stephen, you go on out there, they're going to kill you. They're going to hit you with rocks. But I want you to look up. Look up. And Jesus is standing up, giving 
Stephen the kind of encouragement that he needs. And he's saying, in essence, you go on out there, every stone that hits you will hit me. I will be so close to you. I will give you the strength that you need. And we'll walk home together. If you're not a Christian, you need a God like this. You need a God who loves you and will sustain you, will strengthen you in whatever may come along. And there may be some difficult trials. Sometimes he delivers us from the fiery sermons. Sometimes he delivers us in the fiery sermons. And sometimes he delivers us through the fiery furnace. But he always delivers us. He's the faithful God. He'll never let you down. He will not lie to you. He's too righteous to do that. He's not going to lie to you because he has too much love to do that. He will not lie to you because he's made a promise to you and he's taken an oath regarding that promise. There's no way that God can fail you. What you have to have is a faith that perseveres in whatever happens, whatever comes along. We stand to sing our invitation song. If we can help any of you, we'd be glad to do that. Shall we stand and shall we sing?